The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good morning, everyone. And if you're listening to this on a podcast, good day to you, too, as well, no matter what time you're listening. My name is Jeff Bishop. I'm the chair of the Information Access Committee. And welcome to day one of our three-day sessions on web accessibility and how you can be more empowered to make a difference as it relates to digital accessibility. We're also uh, working together with BITS, Blind Information Technology Specialists, which is another special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. So without further ado, I'm going to hand things over to the person who's going to run the ship for us today, that being Ray Campbell. And I will be with you tomorrow and uh, run the ship for day two. So, Ray, I'll hand it over to you, sir. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ray Campbell. I am right now interim first vice president of the American Council of the Blind. Um, I'm also in the field of, of accessibility. Um, I do uh, web accessibility and app accessibility uh, testing and uh, work for United Airlines. And so, Ray, could uh, I go ahead and share the CE code? Yes. Before, um, before we keep going, I'm going to have Sheila, our host, share the beginning CEU code. All right. Your beginning code is 98258. I'll say it one more time. Nine, eight, two, five, eight. And there will be a closing code when we're done. This morning, we're going to, our goal is not to turn you into a web accessibility expert in the next three days. Our goal, as Jeff stated, is to give you enough information so that when you do encounter accessibility issues out there, you'll be more empowered to not only have tools and ways to work around them, but more importantly, be able to help resolve them. So this morning, we have put together a panel of experts to talk about what's going on in the advocacy space, the legal space, as well as uh, some other uh, issues about web accessibility. So Jeff, if you could just remind me, what order are we taking things in? Right. So let's actually introduce the people who are here today. And uh, I know that a few of the people that are going to be on the panel for days two and three are probably here and listening as well. Um, but due to time constraints, we'll introduce them tomorrow. Uh, I want to warm give a warm welcome to uh, Lucy Greco. Lucy, you want to say hi? Uh, I'm Lucy Greco. I am an accessibility uh, evangelist at UC Berkeley. That's right. And she's a rock star. If anybody uh, follows uh, Twitter and other social media circles, we, everybody will probably know who she is. And uh, Irlene Hughes, the uh, president of BITS, has joined us. Irlene? Hello, everyone. I am Irlene Hughes. I am a web developer. And I, as Jeff said, I am president of Blind Information Technology Specialists. Right. And, and we'll hear from them uh, where time permits later in the hour. And they'll also be in uh, participating as much as they can in day two and day three. So if we don't get everything done today, because we have a lot to cover today, then we'll definitely pick up the things that they have to offer in days two and three for sure. 
So um, Ray, what we're going to do first is we're going to hear from Matt Hanley, who is ACB's attorney. He's going to uh, sort of set the precedent here in reference to why are we here? What is the legal framework that sets web accessibility and really digital accessibility up? Then Clark, who was actually going to be here in person, but then uh, had a conflict, so he wasn't able to join us. So we recorded uh, a, a session with Clark, and it goes a little bit long, but it's really, really good, and, and there's lots of really great questions and feedback throughout it as well. He'll be joining us to talk about digital accessibility within, with a strong emphasis on web accessibility and um, as it relates to advocacy. In other words, what are we doing as an organization in this space? So we're going to take Matt first, then Clark, and then uh, if time permits, and I think we'll have just a few minutes, um, we're going to come back and we're going to really ask questions of our panelists, that being uh, Irlene and, and Lucy, to really talk briefly about the importance of why we're here. And then we'll actually get into more things later with them around things like, you know, how do you actually engage with, with partners? And we covered that a little bit here today, but we want to dive a little bit more in depth on that. And we'll probably end up doing that in, as part of day two and especially in day three, where we're actually going to get engaged quite a bit more. Yeah, okay. We will not have time for Q&A for our audience today. We just have too much, a lot of content for you. So please, we will have plenty of time for that tomorrow and Saturday. So that's correct. That's correct. And, and we will that, have a surprise for you on day three, we have a very special announcement to make um, where you're going to be able to really be more empowered and actually engage with a set of accessibility experts. And we'll, but we'll leave that uh, for you on Saturday. We'll kind of promote some, you know, hype it up a little bit there. So, Ray, take it away, my friend. Okay. Let's hear from Matt Hanley, uh, ACB's uh, attorney uh, who helps us with a lot of digital accessibility issues. So, if we could play that recording. All right, it's time now as part of the Information Access Committee presentation today to hear from our legal experts within ACB as well as our external resources that we utilize within the organization. And to do that, we're going to hear from Matt Hanley first, and then Clark will join us to talk about web accessibility from an advocacy perspective. In other words, what can we do as members of the organization to help push the ball forward? So without further ado, let me warmly welcome Mr. Matt Hanley. And Matt, can you uh, briefly introduce yourself and then we'll dive right into your topic. Great. Well, th thank you so much for having me here. The, um, my name is Matt Handley, and um, I'm currently on the ACB Advisory Board and I've had the pleasure over the last 10 plus years of representing the American Council of the Blind in a in a variety of matters, both litigation and structured negotiations and, and, and advice to try to assist in ACB's advocacy efforts. The thing that I want to talk about today is the legal approaches to ensuring digital accessibility. I, I think, as all of us know, the digital world is an ever-increasing part of our everyday activities. It impacts almost all aspects of our interactions with the world, whether it be from communicating with others, to purchasing goods or services, to interacting with government services, or to educating both ourselves and our children. Um, we live in an ever-increasing digital world. And given the advances in making digital communications accessible, through various screen reading technologies and others, um, there's the potential and should be the guarantee for all these new digital interactions to be both accessible and usable to everyone. 
However, as I think we all know, when companies and agencies fail to ensure that accessibility features are part of the new technologies, we're often left with goods and services that are less accessible than they were before the adoption of these digital versions. ACB has been on the forefront of using the nation's disability rights laws to ensure that adoption of these technologies include accessible features, whether that be through structured negotiations with companies or litigation or administrative enforcement. Um, and today I'm going to give a rundown of the tools that I and other lawyers working in this area use to try to make these goods and services accessible. And along the way, I'm going to highlight some of the activities that ACB has been engaged in relating to these laws. So taking a step back, I mean, one of the first things that we often use in this arena is the Americans with Disabilities Act. And in particular, Title III is one of our biggest sources of law that we use to ensure that the, the places we visit, both virtually and physically, um, are accessible and usable to, uh, to others. Title III of the Americans with Disabilities Act is what governs, is what guarantees the full and equal enjoyment of places of public accommodation. And when that was adopted in the early 90s, the internet and digital accessibility websites, they were really not on the forefront of legislators' minds. Um, and so in many ways, uh, that law is, is, is outdated as a result. Public accommodations in Title III are defined to include things like restaurants or theaters and actual places that people might visit physically. And application to digital accessibility barriers, whether we're talking about websites or kiosks or other digital forms of interaction with businesses, is not as straightforward as you know, we would like for it to be. Now, in some cases, it actually is it is easy. It's easier than one might think. A lot of ACB's advocacy over the last several years and a lot of the work I've done have been in the area of accessible kiosks. They permeate so many places that we visit now, whether it be your doctor's office, restaurants, theaters, others that you have to interact with touchscreen kiosks in order to purchase items and to get services from the places you go. Um, because those kiosks are actually in physical locations that they're, they actually are often at the office that you're visiting or the restaurant that you're going to, they're squarely covered by the accessibility laws, by um, the ADA, by Title III of the ADA. What is less certain is what is what are the what are the obligations of the of the companies that are using those kiosks to ensure that they're accessible. And to that end, ACB has really taken a has been on the forefront of of uh, enforcing these laws as they relate to kiosks. ACB is currently a named plaintiff in two large nationwide class actions, one against Quest Diagnostics, one against LabCorp, related to the introduction of touchscreen tech-in kiosks at those places where they've basically eliminated um, uh, eliminated uh, receptionists. Um, one of those cases against Quest Diagnostics actually went to trial in November. Um, ACB was in, involved in a uh, more than week-long trial out in, in Los Angeles for which we're still awaiting the verdict and for which we hope the court is going to say that Quest Diagnostics must introduce accessibility features to its kiosks. Same for LabCorp too. Um, we're, we're 
eagerly anticipating a good result there too, and that the courts are going to to state as a matter of law that companies that are using these kiosks have to make them accessible to um, to, to blind users. And Title Three of the ADA is what we use to, to to do that. Now, when it comes to websites, it is it it's not as the application of the existing disability rights laws is not as straightforward. There have been efforts around the country to apply those same public accommodation laws that I mentioned to the digital world outside of the traditional brick and mortar businesses like websites. And most of us, I think today would say that website businesses are the modern day places of public accommodation. They are the modern day shopping centers. That, that is where we go to engage in commerce. But not all courts agree. And there is a split. Some courts around the country say that those laws only apply to physical locations. Others, particularly in the Northeast of the country, have a much broader reading of the law and say it applies to most businesses, regardless of whether they have a, a physical location. Western states, California, for example, and others um, along, the, uh, along the Western part of the country, follow a rule that says that the website has to have a nexus to a brick and mortar location. In other words, the website itself has to facilitate your full and equal enjoyment of the brick and mortar store. So a, a website that also has a brick and mortar location associated with it would be covered. But one that has no physical location, at least in the Western states, probably would not be. And so that's created quite a, you know, a disarray amongst, you know, how does one go about enforcing disability rights laws in this country? And people do pick and choose where which courts to file in as a result. The other alternative, though, to trying to go down the path of using the Americans with Disabilities Act law is our state law alternatives to the ADA. And for years, that has really been kind of where a lot of the attention has been, since many states have adopted what are called, you know, quote unquote, mini ADAs, which prohibit similar discrimination as the ADA, but are not necessarily held to the same restrictions about brick and mortar locations and interpretations that the ADA is. And historically, California's UNRU Act has been such a statute. In this last year, there's been some unfortunate decisions that have come from the California Court of Appeals that have really restricted even now the use of California's Unruh Act, um, such that you either have to show, much like you would with the ADA, that they are attached to a brick and mortar location, or that the person who designed the website or the, the company that's using the website has engaged in quote unquote intentional discrimination, meaning you have to actually show that they really intended to discriminate against. Um, people with disabilities against the blind community. It's not enough to just say that they weren't really thinking about it when they designed the website, that they didn't think about including accessibility features. And so that's been a very unfortunate development. It has been a setback for how we go about trying to enforce um, these public accommodation laws as they apply to websites. Not all of the developments, though, have been bad in this area. One of the other arrows that we have in our arsenal and one that ACB has really been the pioneer in using is a relatively unknown law. And when I say relatively unknown, I, I mean, particularly outside of, of the of those who, who engage in accessibility work is called the Communications and Video Accessibility Act, which requires um, what are called advanced communication services and products to be accessible to people with disabilities. And advanced communication services are things you know, like um, messaging services, 
things that have text messaging, things that have email, instant messaging, video communications, those sorts of things are advanced communication services. And companies that manufacture products or, or use products that have those types of services in them are necessarily under this law have to make them accessible. And that has really opened up a lot of avenues that were not that we were not able to be explored through traditional federal disability rights laws to try to make sure that companies um, who use digital technologies are doing so in an accessible way. So for instance, um, you know, there are many technologies that we encounter that have these advanced communication services, healthcare portals that we might use. I know that I, for one, and I think most people also now, whenever they interact with their doctors and their hospitals, have to go through these um, online healthcare portals doing online, doing <coughs> virtual uh, healthcare visits through telehealth visits to require advanced communication services. The smartphones you use, the smart watches you use, uh, gym equipment that has video monitors on it, any email services, including even the email service that ACB uses to send out mass emails to its members, uh, constant contact. All of those use advanced communication services, and all of them are required to make those services accessible. And it has really given an opportunity for ACB to engage with the business community that uses these in a collaborative way, at least hopefully, but if, if they're not willing to collaborate in an enforcement way to make sure that these services are accessible. The challenges with this law is that the enforcement mechanism is through the Federal Communications Commission through the FCC. And so we don't file cases with courts in this. Instead, we file requests for assistance with the FCC and complaints with the FCC. It makes it a little more difficult for lawyers to have a meaningful role in it um, because there are, is not a, a private right of action and there's not damages for the claimant or fee shifting provisions. But nonetheless, it has still been a very useful and integral part of ACB's efforts to make sure that these companies are complying with their accessibility requirements. And I expect that we're going to continue to use that area, that, that element going forward too. The one um, thing that I would close with on this are, are, are two thoughts. One is, you know, once you have satisfied the requirement that something must be made accessible, how does one determine whether the courts or the FCC determine you know, what is what makes it accessible? How is that requirement met? And there's still no definitive answer in that there's not a there's not a specific law out there that says you must use the web content accessibility guidelines to um, ensure that your uh, website is accessible. However, at least in the last 12 months, we now finally have had guidance issued by the DOJ and many courts have also adopted that guidance noting that the existing technical standards such as WCAG, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, are, are the most sort of robust and, and, and best guidelines out there for trying to ensure that accessibility and usability has been, has been reached. And so that I think we will continue to see more and more um, fulsome adoption of that as, as, as it goes forward. Um, and then the last thing I would leave you with is one threat to our efforts. There is a, a case that is pending, wending its way now through the Supreme Court and is going to be be heard in the next term um, called Ackeson Hotels versus Lawfer. And it involves a, you know, a quote unquote self-appointed tester, a web, a, 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 a 
a tester who has who goes and tests various websites um, to and to see if they are accessible and to see if the the products that are being offered by the companies who have these websites are accessible. In this case, we're talking about a ho- whether a hotel was going to be uh, a hotel's website was offering um, accessible accessible accommodation. The Supreme Court's taking this case up because to answer the question of whether a self-appointed tester has standing to challenge violations of the ADA, even if that person doesn't necessarily have the intention of actually visiting that place. The reason why this is meaningful is that a lot of enforcement has gone on in the last years, over the years, with by individuals who um, may not have a genuine interest in visiting a particular place, but who nonetheless have a bona fide interest in ensuring that various places of public accommodation and their websites are accessible. And the Supreme Court here could very well limit the ability of, you know, quote unquote, civil rights testers to enforce our laws. It would be unfortunate if um, if the court does that. I think luckily, ACB and its efforts hopefully will not suffer too much from that and that most of ACB's efforts are done on behalf of um, itself and its members who are not just civil rights testers, but are in fact people who have tried and run into barriers with the businesses that they've tried to, to frequent. And so I, my hope is, is that this court decision, even if it does not go for the claimant here, will, will not greatly impact what uh, ACB's ongoing efforts are. And so I think with that, I'll end my time here. Matt, this is Clark Rockfall with ACB. Thank you so much for your, your time and your expertise on this issue. Uh, you mentioned one of the the potential challenges here coming in the Supreme Court. Um, I think our audience would love to hear just from your perspective, uh, what needs to be done, whether uh, legislatively or uh, through regulation to ensure that the rights of people with disabilities are protected in the virtual and digital environment? Well, I think from a federal level, and some of these may be pie in the sky requests, but I, I would like to think not. From the federal level, I think one of the one of the limitations that we have with the with Title III of the ADA, the public accommodations portion, which we've been talking about, and what has led actually to this Supreme Court challenge is that there is not a damages provision under it. That it's the only thing you're entitled to if you if uh, if you win is is in injunctive relief, meaning you're to get them to change what it is that has resulted in the violation. You're not entitled to damages. And if there were a damages remedy, even if it were a very modest one, I think it would it would incentivize companies to ensure um, that they are uh, accessible before they're sued. And it would ensure that the that the the so-called standing issue that's before the Supreme Court is not um, goes away. In other words, if I it wouldn't matter if I had an intent to go there, if I can show that I've been damaged. Um, as a result, then it won't matter whether I intend to return to the to the place. On the CVAA, the the, the Communications and Video Accessibility Act, there too, I think the the a regulatory or, or or legislative fix that I think would be most desirable too is to put a bit more teeth into it by also either providing both a by providing a damages remedy and providing a fee shifting 
provision. One of the one of the things that allows lawyers like myself and others to bring these cases, even when there are not high damages, is the fact that they they are fee shifting, and when you when you prevail in them, the other side has to pay counsel's fees, and that allows civil rights attorneys to bring what would otherwise be an economically infeasible case. Um, it allows it allows us to bring them because we know that that it won't be having to be done for free. And that in turn allows better enforcement and more compliance. And so I think adding those things would certainly um, would certainly benefit both laws. That's great. Thanks, Matt, for sharing that perspective about uh, legislation and regulation. But here we are, ACB, a membership organization. So, uh, so a slightly different question. What can members of ACB, people who are blind, low vision, deafblind uh, advocates and our organization do to help ensure that the, the online and virtual environment is just as, if not more accessible than the physical environment. Well, one of the, um, one of the strengths and one of the things that has given me the most pleasure in representing ACB is its membership. And it's what has allowed it to flex its muscle in cases that otherwise would have been very challenging to bring. The Quest and LabCorp cases that I mentioned earlier on, I think are good examples. Those cases originate from a, uh, perhaps a single complaint from someone, but because by virtue of the breadth and eagerness to, to be active of its membership, we're able to then grow those cases into something that is goes beyond just a single person and, and paint a picture to the courts and to the public about why why these issues matter. That it's not just one person who has run into a, a barrier in one place. These are things that affect people all around the country. And I think that the and we did that in those cases. We've we put forward to the court uh, you know a a a list of the numerous members who had faced similar barriers across the country. And I think that it, I would encourage ACB's members to continue to speak out, reach out to ACB's leadership too, to let them know when they encounter barriers so that the resources can be put into that to, um, to if necessary, bring enforcement actions to, to uh, correct it or, um, you know, hopefully even short of enforcement actions to do outreach to these uh, companies and government agencies and the like to to try to correct it. But I think that the more outspoken the membership is about things that it witnesses on a day-to-day basis, the the more um, positive work that ACB can do. Thank you very much, Matt, for coming today. And we're hoping that we'll uh, get you back in on a community call in the future and give us some more updates on what's happening, you know, from the legal landscape and give people updates within the organization. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Um, Very interesting. In we're going to roll right into our next recording. Now we're going to hear more about what we as members and advocates can do. And to talk with us about that, it's time to hear from our a- ACB's Advocacy and Governmental Affairs Director, Clark Rockfall. All right, Clark, we had a great conversation here with Matt, and that was just amazing. 
just great presentation. So now what I'd like to do is turn our attention to the work that we're doing within ACB as it relates to digital access and advocacy. And then we'll maybe you know, ask some questions at the tail end of, of your presentation in this space. So take it away, Clark. Hey, thanks so much, Jeff. And hello again, everyone. This is Clark Rockfall, ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs. Uh, and just like Jeff said, a big thank you to Matt Handley for joining us to share about the, the legal landscape as it relates to uh, website and digital accessibility. And as Jeff mentioned, I'm here to share about just what the heck ACB, especially the ACB National Office, is up to as it relates to website accessibility and digital inclusion. Uh, just like many of our other areas of advocacy, this is a, a multi-pronged approach because there are many ways to advocate and help advance accessibility in the digital space. Uh, so we are watching regulations, legislation, as well as uh, some of our legal advocacy efforts. So Matt Hanley talked about, uh, among other things, the Americans with Disabilities Act and uh, some other, other reg regulations that are laws that turned into regulations that impact uh, website and digital accessibility. Uh, there is an effort now in, in the current Biden-Harris administration to move forward uh, website accessibility regulations under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So for the the past every every geez Jeff every time I give this presentation I have to adjust the math because the the years are just going on. So basically for the past 27 years now the Department of Justice has been on the record whether in Congress or in the courts saying yes the ADA applies to websites, but we don't have specific regulations to provide certainty uh, to people with disabilities, certainty to businesses for the rules of the road on just how exactly the ADA applies to websites. Uh, you know, we have specific rules and regulations, guidance out of the US Access Board that then the Department of Justice and different federal agencies turn into enforceable regulations. And, and that's great for the, the physical environment, but we don't have that for the virtual environment, you know, the, uh, the virtual door or window, um, as it were. But currently, the Department of Justice is working on uh, website and application accessibility regulations under Title II of the ADA. And Title II of the ADA applies to state and local governments. So this is a big chunk of what our members and affiliates encounter uh, at home, you know, our, our state affiliates, our local chapters, you know, the boots on the ground, whether you're interacting with a local department of transportation um, because you want access to paratransit services, or you're contacting uh, your secretary of state's office as it relates to, to voting or any other state services, right? Um, these regulations would clearly state and how that state and local governments need to apply to the ADA through these regulations. But that's only one aspect of the Americans with Disabilities Act and also only one aspect of our uh, everyday lives. There's also Title III of the ADA, which applies to places of public 
accommodations. Uh, so uh, businesses, nonprofits, and, and so on. Unfortunately, there has not been much movement from the Department of Justice on Title III ADA regulations for websites, applications, and online services. American Council of the Blind, ACB, along with our partners, we are working to, uh, to keep the administration's feet to the fire, as it, as it were. Um, we are, are waiting. We're hopeful that here in June of 2023, we will have the notice of proposed rulemaking for the ADA Title II website and application uh, accessibility regulations. But we want to see that Title III NPRM notice of proposed rulemaking as well. You know, we're, we're excited that if this Title II rulemaking comes out here in June, that everyone in ACB and all our members will be able to file comments and the rulemaking will be able to proceed and that we'll have a, a final rule before the end of the current administration, before the end of 2024. Uh, because with uh, folks who have been doing this longer than I have, you know that this is not the first time that an administration has tried to move forward uh, website accessibility regulations under the ADA. Uh, the Obama administration uh, announced that they would be doing that back in 2010. The rulemakings for Title II and III were started in 2015, uh, but an election happened in 2016 and elections have consequences. A new administration came in with new priorities and the rulemaking was discontinued in 2017. So regardless of what happens during the 2024 presidential election, uh, we don't want the possibility of a new administration with new priorities uh, discontinuing this rulemaking, right? We, we want this rulemaking to be done and on the books um, so that we have certainty, state and local governments have certainty, and you know, fingers and toes crossed, we move forward with a Title III rulemaking that businesses, nonprofits, and other uh, organizations that we all in encounter and use on a daily basis uh, have a regulatory framework in place as well. Another area where regulations are moving forward, many federal agencies, such as Department of Education, Department of Transportation, uh, Homeland Security, what else? Department of Labor and Housing and Urban Development. I can't forget Health and Human Services as well, HHS. They are all in the process of updating their Section 504 regulations under the Rehabilitation Act. In many cases, these 504 regulations that provide for people with disabilities equal access to the services uh, funded by the federal government, they've not been updated for decades. So already we have an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, uh, a NPRM, that has been issued by the Department of Housing and Urban Development and ACB, along with the Pedestrian and Environmental Access Committee, are working on comments for this HUD ANPRM. Um, the comments for this are due by July 24th. 
And HUD is asking a very simple question. They've not updated their 504 regulations, I believe, since the, the late 80s, uh, 1987 or so. Um, think about where the, where the websites and internet were back then. But it, as they update their regulations to provide equal access for people with disabilities, they're asking what this means for websites and applications as it relates to housing. Uh, well, certainly, if you have a property management company, if you're accessing an application to become a renter, and all of this is very important. Uh, so this is a kind of the first bite of the apple as these 504 regulations move forward. We're we're optimistic that the other agencies will be doing a, a notice of proposed rulemaking, which is a step further along. Because again, we want these to be completed during the Biden-Harris administration and done before the end of 2024 as well. I mean, in the in the space like healthcare, health and human services, what would this mean for telehealth, accessing health insurance, uh, patient portals, all of this information that everyone can access through websites, through applications, through online services and portals, People with disabilities, we need equal access in this space as well. So the, the federal government funds uh, a lot of services, whether that's through Medicare and Medicaid or otherwise. So this could have a, a broad reach and impact our healthcare system. Same with the Department of Transportation. The Infrastructure and Jobs Act was passed a, a year or two ago with uh, so much money. I, I don't remember the exact number, but millions upon billions of dollars flowing out from the federal government to improve transportation and infrastructure, public transportation, paratransit. And if there are websites and applications that are used to check timetables, calendars, uh, access fare cards, uh, complete applications, all of that will need to be made accessible as the Section 504 regulations are updated to include websites and applications. Another aspect of the Rehabilitation Act is Section 508, which deals with the information communications and the technology used by the federal government. And the federal government, and especially the Department of Justice, um, they're supposed to put out a report every two years on how the federal government is doing implementing Section 508. Um, well, we haven't known how they're doing except anecdotally, right? We, like, we know that our visually impaired veterans have had issues accessing um, services from the VA because their websites and applications have, have not been accessible or they have... Um, so many inaccessible PDFs on where they're sharing information. But in terms of a report from the government, it had been 11 years before the Department of Justice had released their, uh, their biennial report. And that changed this year. Uh, so we're, we're very thankful that the Department of Justice working with the Government Services Administration, GSA, and Government Accountability Office, GAO, issued the report. We are 
know, praising them for issuing the report, for showing where the government is falling short and what work still needs to be done. But we're also encouraging them, friendly encouragement for them to do this on schedule every two years so we can track how uh, the government's improving and where our advocacy needs to be focused to, to nudge them along. In addition to the regulatory framework, um, we've, we have some legislative items that are in the works. One of which that we are working with the American Foundation for the Blind, National Federation of the Blind, and National Disability Rights Network, NDRN, most closely, and this is one of our legislative imperatives, the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act. This legislation was introduced in the 117th Congress in September of 2022 by Senator Duckworth from the, the great state of Illinois, uh, home of the 2023 Annual Conference and Convention in Schomburg. Senator Duckworth is in the U.S. Senate, as well as Representative Sarbanes, Democrat from Maryland. Um, he, Representative Sarbanes introduced the bill in the House of Representatives. This bill that we are working to have reintroduced here in 2023 in the 118th Congress would, would do what uh, we were just talking about, similar to under the ADA, having uh, rulemakings. You know, we mentioned that there's no effort right now to move forward a, a Title III ADA rulemaking. Uh, well, this bill would create a firm deadline for the creation of a, a website and software applications uh, rulemaking from the Department of Justice, as well as the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Uh, so we would have a date certain for those rulemakings to be completed. Uh, that would provide certainty for us as users as we access uh, these products and services in the online environment, but it would also give certainty to the businesses as well for them to know what rules they need to follow. Another uh, aspect of this legislation is that it uh, it goes beyond uh, what the ADA can currently allow. Uh, much like the, the ADA went beyond the Rehab Act, the Rehab Act went beyond the Civil Rights Act. Um, you know, it's in a lot of times legislation and the subsequent rules are in uh, a process that build upon one another uh, and fill in any, any gaps that might exist. You know, we also have this in the voting space where there's the, the Voting Rights Act, then the Rehab Act, then the ADA, and then the Help America Vote Act. Um, where our, our rights become more secure as each law is implemented and you see where the gaps are um, and you, you create a new law and new regulations to fill in those gaps. Well, a couple things are, are happening here in the online space. And, you know, and Matt touched on this as well, but different courts around the country have interpreted differently how the ADA applies to uh, websites and the online environment. So, for example, if you if you live in uh, Boston or Watertown, Massachusetts, you know you you're probably feeling pretty good on how how the federal courts in your district have ruled upon the uh, the accessibility 
requirements of websites. But if you live in Florida or Texas, uh, you know your your rights as somebody with a disability online are less secure. And it's and this plays out throughout the country, right? You know, uh, Massachusetts and uh, Chicago, Illinois are are better in some ways that, than even California when it comes to these these court decisions. Um, so even if we move forward with Title II and Title III ADA rulemakings, um, we're still going to have that that kind of split circuit and that uncertainty from the federal courts. Well, here with the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act, um, this would be a new law separate from the ADA saying, yes, this stuff needs to be accessible. Yes, here it are the rules and regulations, you know, through a a standard rulemaking process with comments and reply comments um, so that people with disabilities and industry can weigh in and be a part of the process. But it will also, as I said, go beyond the ADA by going to the providers of technology. As how often do we hear from folks that, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a student or I'm a parent of a student with a disability and my university or the school has bought technology or is uh, contracted with a vendor, a third-party vendor to supply technology. And it's that technology not owned by the school or the university, um, but being used by them that's inaccessible. And that third-party vendor uh, is not working to make it accessible to my student or to me or is not making accessible nearly fast enough as somebody's in the in the throes of a, a semester or a school year. Same for the workplace. Uh, you know, here at ACB, we we've got some great folks like uh, Jeff Bishop and Rick Morin and others that can you know code and build technology and and help manage our our digital assets. But there are still technologies that we use from third party vendors. And it's ensuring that our members, when they're accessing, say, like a constant contact, that they can navigate accessibly because that vendor has made their technology accessible. That wasn't always the case. Um, And ACB has had to do some advocacy in this arena so that we have that capability in a service like Constant Contact now. But whether it's the, the vendor designing your website, offering your uh, telehealth platform, patient portal, your uh, your distance learning platform, uh, your HR and payroll system uh, for your business. You know, there needs to be requirements on all of these vendors that these technologies are being made accessible, and there needs to be recourse, uh, not only for people with disabilities, but for the employers, the educators the healthcare provider, when they think that they're uh, purchasing an accessible platform, or if a vendor is is not cooperating and making it accessible, um, there needs to be a recourse that they can take to get to those vendors to have them in, make their platforms accessible. And certainly our goal is to have it to be accessible by design. In addition to the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act, I'd like to touch on another one of our legislative imperatives, and that's the um, the amendment to the communi- the 21st Century Communications 
and Video Accessibility Act of 2010, an ACB champion, the CVAA, to be signed into law by President Obama back in 2010. And now we're working with our partners in the deaf and hard of hearing community to amend the CVAA. And last year we had introduced the Communications Video and Technology Accessibility Act. Uh, there may be a, a session a virtual session at convention occurring on this legislation right now. So be sure to check out that podcast as well. But as Matt Handley shared, the, the CVAA applies, you know, we all think about audio description, video user interfaces, but it also has accessibility requirements for advanced communication services. And in the CVTA, um, there's rulemaking authority and requirements for video conferencing services. Um, we're excited that the Federal Communications Commission is moving forward with this under their own jurisdiction. But depending on how this shakes out, we may want more specific requirements in the legislation. The reason I mentioned the CVAA and the CVTA is because these advanced communication services, two-way messaging, two-way audio, and two-way video, these are being incorporated into so many websites and online platforms. Uh, whether you're chatting uh, with a, an e-commerce platform to try to get the, the right size of a pair of shoes or to figure out whether your laptop will fit into a new work bag, or uh, you know, we mentioned before distance learning platforms. If you're in a video conference for class, or if you are on a, I guess we'll call them like a soft phone, uh, a voice over internet protocol or VOIP or VoIP uh, phone through your computer for work, um, that needs to be accessible. If you are, again, video conferencing, whether in the classroom, in the workplace, or with a healthcare provider or a government entity, that needs to be accessible as well under these advanced communication service rules. And as I now moved to kind of our legal advocacy in this space, ACB has been successful, I'd say expanding upon entities, communications providers, you know, your traditional telephone service providers, messaging service providers who know about the FCC's regulations. We've been successful using these uh, advanced communication services rules and regulations to go beyond those traditional providers to enforce these regulations on telehealth providers to let them know that, hey, uh, your platform must be accessible for people with disabilities. We can agree to disagree on some aspects of this, but according to the FCC's rules, we are very confident and we would like to work with you to make your platform and services accessible. And the FCC has agreed with us in this regard, and we've been successful in communicating this to telehealth providers and having them work with us. We've been successful in using these rules to communicate with uh, connected fitness providers uh, you know, exercise equipment manufacturers that then offer classes that are provided over the internet. We've been successful using these rules to work with them to make their platforms accessible. So that's why I think that the CVAA 
has long-standing value in making websites and applications accessible. And that's why we're working to expand upon the CVAA with the Communications Video and Technology Accessibility Act. And then uh, still in the, in the legal advocacy space, uh, the ACB for many years has been a, a champion in this space, whether it's working with the streaming video providers to make their websites, mobile applications, to make those accessible, but also to add audio description to their catalogs. We just saw this month, the announcement of HBO Max becoming Max. Certainly ACB has built a relationship with Warner Brothers Discovery to make their website and mobile applications accessible for their services and for them to now be offering thousands of hours of audio description over those platforms. But it's not just Max, it's been Hulu, it's been Netflix and others. As Matt Hanley shared, we, we're also working with the providers of kiosks because kiosks are kind of that you know user interface of where a customer accesses online services. In many cases, it's just a, a single application that's loaded onto a tablet that's presented to the consumer as here's your kiosk. Well, that interface needs to be accessible so that we can have access, whether it's to the, the medical facility or to the fast food or casual restaurant, or if we're in an airport and we need to access a kiosk for whatever reason, um, we need to make sure that that interface is accessible and we need to make sure that we can accessibly access um, and that access is two ways, right? We need to be able to receive information from the kiosk as well as uh, insert, uh, confirm and submit information into the kiosk to access those online services as well. So that is what ACB is working on in terms of regulation, legislation, and legal advocacy in the uh, digital accessibility space. Back to you, Jeff. Great. Thank you, Clark, so much. I have a few questions, if you don't mind. That's the uh, moderator's prerogative. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that. So uh, how do all these new you know, uh, legal frameworks and, and uh, legislative efforts that we're driving here, how do you think this is going to impact education space as it relates to online platforms, such as those being used in the education space? We know that this is constantly changing. Is this, is this something that's being considered as part of the legislative process? I would say that there, there will definitely be impacts on the education space. The Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act, other than employment, does not specify a specific sector, right? Employment's not specific to government, private, public entity, anything right. like that. But as we talk about accessibility in this space, it will certainly impact the education arena. Same with the, um, the advanced communication services rules, you know, in the education space on virtual learning, distance learning, e-learning platforms, um, you have a messaging feature, you have a, a voice communication feature, you have a video conference feature. Well, not only do those need to be accessible, but every menu and setting used to access those must be accessible as well, right? So I think both of these legislative efforts will have 
a direct impact in the education space without singling out or making the the legislation narrowly focused to education. And then I'd go back to the the regulatory push as the Title II rulemaking moves forward and you're impacting state and local governments. Um, Obviously, you've got public education and uh, state-funded universities and colleges that would have to comply with the, the Title II rulemaking. And then the Department of Education, they pump millions and billions of dollars out into the education system. Um, and as the Section 504 regulations are refreshed um, you know, the, under the Department of Education, that will have a direct specific impact on uh, schools, universities, and colleges as well for websites, applications, you know, more than just the communications aspects, but all aspects of their online services and offerings. Sure. Now, we know that the W3C and WAI working groups and all of that are, are working on the WCAG standard, and 2.2 is coming more quickly than 3.0 is in the work. How much of this legislative work is really driven based on those recommendations? Is this are, are we sort of aligning to those standards in the legislative process here? In other words, if we pass a law, the president yeah. signs, signs it, right? How, how quickly is it out of date from the standpoint of, okay, we, we signed this law and now we have new standards that just get released, say, in a year or two? Is there a way to sort of circumvent that in this process or, or what do we do about that? That Another great question, Jeff. You probably know better than I, but the World Wide Web Consortium, or W3C, the international standard setting body, they created the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, or WCAG. Um, the, the federal government, for the longest time, is working off of WCAG 2.0. And we just had the Section 508 uh, refresh in 2017 or 18, mm-hmm. and the federal government moved to uh, WCAG 2.1. Well, we're, yeah. we're already five years later. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And if just imagine if there was a, a web accessibility rulemaking under the ADA when the ADA was passed in 1990, what would that standard have been mm-hmm. back in 1990? And here we are 33 years later. So that's something that we are very cognizant of as we look toward the website's and Software Applications Accessibility Act, as we were drafting the legislation and working with our partners, we all agreed that we didn't want to define a standard because as great as we think that WCAG or WCAG 2.1 level AA, as great as we think that that is, if this wasn't revisited, again, using the ADA as an example, for 33 years, what would that mean for accessibility in the digital space? Would we all be tied to legacy technology? Imagine if our folks in the the deaf and hard of hearing community, as everyone's going to uh, wireless phones, uh, again, voice over internet protocol, uh, fiber optic networks, imagine if they still needed a, a TTY to connect to the copper switch telephone network, right? That's not equal access. You know, they wouldn't have all of the accessibility features and capabilities that exist today. So in drafting the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act, 
we included a functional definition of accessibility, um, much like we have under the ADA for effective communication. Um, the ADA doesn't say how you must provide effective communication, but it says that you must communicate effectively with a person with a disability to provide them with equal access. And that's what we're going for here with the definition of accessibility in the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act. You know, you need to provide access with the same independence, same privacy, same ease of use for somebody with a disability as is available and provided to somebody without a disability. Now that's in the legislation, right? That's what's going to get hopefully passed by Congress and signed into law by the president. Following the legislation, you know, I mentioned the the rulemakings that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and the Department of Justice will be doing. That's where you'd get into the more specific standards because we also have a requirement that the rulemaking be revisited every three years to see if it's meeting the needs of people with disabilities. So if you have have WCAG 2.1, but technology has outpaced the the guidelines and the, the standards, then it's time to update those regulations to a 2.2 or 3.0. Perfect. Okay. That's awesome. So we're really thinking ahead here strategically in reference to trying to stay ahead of the curve because we know, I mean, look at the pace of innovation that's happening across the industry, right? I, you know, it's only getting faster. So it is. You know, who, who knows what's going to happen in, in five years from now? And that's another great point, Jeff, because in in both the website accessibility bill and the CVTA, we included that there should be reports in the web, in the web access bill, the reports coming from the National Council on Disability, NCD, and in the CVTA, it's a report from the U.S. Access Board, both focusing on emerging technology. What new technologies are out there and how are they impacting people with disabilities? Are they accessible? So in the web bill, um, NCD is taking a a broad look at emerging technologies. In the the CVTA, the access board and working with the FCC, they're focused on communications and video technologies. So it's two very useful reports, but also for two different purposes. So it's information that will be able to inform uh, policy work and accessibility work going forward. Yeah. So this is not just impacting screen reader users, but it's going to impact switch and voice control and command and control and, and you know, all aspects of, of the way that we interact with devices. Right. And it, exactly. And how are we interacting with those devices? Is it mm-hmm. gestures? Is it uh, eye contact? And I guess a, right. another point, and you know, there's a a session on artificial intelligence coming up this week as well. How how is our technology interacting with us? And well, that's right. The, yeah, and what's the impact there um, mm-hmm. on people with disabilities and accessibility? Yeah, it's, it, it's really exciting. Well, well, finally, Clark, I want to turn a little bit now toward what can the members of the American Council of the Blind do to help you and to really empower themselves to push the ball forward as it relates to digital access and just web accessibility in general and all the efforts that we've talked about here. So I'm wondering if you can give some guidance or some direction to our members. Um, We actually have some announcements to make later on in our three-day panel here. 
but in ways that people will be able to interact, the Information Access Committee has put up some resources that will help. But I'm just wondering if you have any guidance or direction as to how our members can get more involved and be, you know, feel empowered in the process. Well, Jeff, it's a simple phrase, but we say it at the end of every advocacy update podcast, and that's keep advocating, right? Whether it's sharing technology that is accessible with ACB in the broader community, or it's letting us know what is not working for you, what is inaccessible. And as Jeff said, there, there'll be a, an announcement on how you can communicate that with the Information Access Committee, but you can always email advocacy at acb.org to share that directly with me, as well as your advocacy and outreach specialist, Swatha Nanda Kumar. And again, that's advocacy at acb.org, but also a couple more ways. Let the companies or let the government entity, the providers know when you are encountering accessibility barriers. I know I, I sound like a broken record in this regard, but if companies aren't hearing from you, if the federal government or state regulators aren't hearing from you, they're not going to always know that there is a problem, right? So being able to share that back to a provider of technology, you know, and if they hear it once, it might not make a difference. But if they hear it a dozen times, a hundred times from you and others, because you are making your voice heard, you're sharing what is working and what is not working. You're giving them information that they can use to troubleshoot the problem on their end, right? And when you share this information, not only with the companies, but also say, for example, by filing a disability rights complaint with the Department of Justice or the Department of Transportation or Health and Human Services, they do read these complaints. I know it gets frustrating for all of us. We feel like we're always complaining, always lodging these instances with regulators or with companies, but they do make a difference. They are heard, they are read. And when they notice that there is a pattern forming, that's when they become more likely to take action. You all are the experts in you, in your blindness, your vision loss, uh, what technology is working for you and what is not. Um, so we need to be able to share those stories and communicate um, those, those advocacy wins and, and uh, I don't want to say losses, but challenges, opportunities uh, with ACB, uh, with the providers of the technology or the company that you're getting the goods and services from, uh, as well as the government agencies that oversee those technologies so that they know that there's a problem and that we can all work together to address uh, those challenges and those opportunities in the future. And then lastly, stay tuned. As Jeff said, not only to the announcements coming out here at the conference, uh, but also some exciting in-person opportunities that we have in Schaumburg to provide some feedback to some technology providers. But also stay tuned to the announcements from ACB as we work toward reintroducing the CVTA, uh, the Communications Video and Technology Accessibility Act, as well as the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act. 
Because once we have these bills reintroduced, we're going to need your help to contact your members of Congress to get them on as co-sponsors to this legislation. Both of these bills were introduced by Democrats last year. We really want these bills, this legislation, a fix here to be bipartisan. We know that our members, whether they are Republican or Democrat, face the same barriers when it comes to websites and online services. This is a a bipartisan issue, a bipartisan problem that will be greatly enhanced with a bipartisan solution. So there you have it, Jeff. Communicate with ACB, keep advocating with companies and government agencies when you encounter those barriers, and then raise your voice and share with your members of Congress in the House and Senate to support the CVTA and web access bill once they are reintroduced. That, that's awesome. And, and one final thing here, um, when we're talking with vendors and, and technology companies, what, what approach is best here? I know that, that you know, some people have different opinions on this, but w- w- what do you think is the right approach in reference to just dealing with these companies that re- as it relates to just providing them feedback? What, what do you think is the best way of handling that? as we advocate. You know, I, I always find a, uh, an ounce of honey is better than a, uh, a gallon of vinegar when yeah, right. communicating, mm-hmm. um, with, with anyone. Right. And certainly mm-hmm. we have our, we have our ACB core values. So offering to be collaborative, communicating in an honest, open and respectful manner is in my mind and in ACB's mind, the best approach, Right. I think if, especially as an individual, if you're communicating with a, a, a company, I don't know, say, say there's your favorite shoe brand has an inaccessible website, tell them the story. You know, you love the product, but you can't access it independently. You know, you want right. to buy your loved one a birthday or Christmas present, but you can't complete the purchase, right? Because, hey, you're a customer your dollars count. So being able to to share the story, make the personal connection, but then also give them, you know, don't just say this is inaccessible to me, period, send. Like what's inaccessible about it? Where where are the barriers that you're encountering? Is it the submit button? Is it the color options, the size? If you're making an appointment with your healthcare provider, is it the drop-down calendar? Is it trying to enter your insurance information? Uh, try to be as you know specific as possible so that they can understand where the disconnect is occurring so they have some actionable information to fix it. And Jeff, from a technology space, I mean, you, you live and breathe this, right? If, if someone yep. was communicating to you, what would you hope that they would include in that message? Well, I, th- I think the most important thing is, is to tell the real user experience. That what, what is the impact overall of, of the problem? Not so much in getting into the technical details because it, it, that's not as important. It's about what exactly is the barrier to entry and explaining it in a human-centric way, right? In other words, just bringing the real problem forward, I think is the most important thing. And doing that in a way of partnering together and not so much in an adversarial way to try to get resolution, I think is the right approach. At least that's what I tried to do. Yeah. I mean, I, 
I have a favorite outdoor company that I'm a member of the co-op. I don't want to give any names, but folks <laughs> can connect the dots. Sure. And I wanted to buy my wife a birthday present, but I couldn't complete the online order myself. And I actually needed my wife's help to complete the online order to choose the size and color of her birthday present. So when I got the survey of how was your purchase experience, it's like, hey, not great, Bob, not great. So, and I shared with them, like, I've been a member for eight years and love the company, love the work that you do, but this was my experience. And because, right, right, right. because of this barrier, because I could not complete this process, you know, I needed my wife's help to purchase her birthday present. So no surprise whatsoever. Oh, that's right? sad. So there's the there's the human element that right. that anyone can relate to in yep. sharing that story, and, and that's real, right? I mean, that, that, I mean, anybody could really understand that. You're not getting into the minutia of, oh my gosh, you don't have all the attributes on it on on your images, or you know, your form labels aren't marked up properly, or it, you're you're telling the human story behind your experience, and I think that's that's really what this gets down to. Absolutely. That's awesome. Clark, thank you so very much. And we'll definitely have you back uh, later in the year to get some updates and especially on Main Menu Live or you know another uh, community call near you. But uh, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. And yep, we'll just keep advocating and, and getting you all that feedback. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Jeff. We have two uh, experts with us today, um, Erlene Hughes and Lucy Greco. So um like to ask you to, each of you, maybe to talk about in your work uh, with the web. And folks, we're going to focus on the web for these three sessions. We know there's issues with apps and things like that, but we're not going to focus on that at this time. Lucy and Erlene, I guess my first question for you would be, as you do your work, what is the biggest accessibility, the top accessibility issue that you, you guys see um, as you're doing your, your work? Either one of you can start. This is Erlene. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll go first. Um, one of the biggest issues I see in my work is integrating a website that I maintain, integrating other features from other websites into the existing website so that the users of the existing website can use the features that are needed to add on to the platform of that website. Um, I could give you an example. I won't name the website that I was integrating with, but I was building um, convention registration for a website, and I needed to create um, session times and costs for signing up for that session. And the code that I needed to build from the site that I was integrating from, that code was not accessible to me. So I had to find a way to get at code that I needed to create the new code for the website that I maintained. And it took me a little while, probably I'd say a week or so, 
trying to figure out, first of all, that I couldn't get access to the code I needed. And secondly, once I realized it was an accessibility issue, then I had to figure out how to get access to it and, trans and create the code that I needed so that I could put the information onto the website that I maintained so the users of that website could then register for their convention. So I did use cited assistance to solve that problem. And once I was able to get the page opened, I was able to then create the code I needed and then move forward with building their convention registration platform. The sites, many of the sites have become so advanced that I think some of our screen reading technology have not been able to keep up with the advance, advancements to give us the access that we need as developers. Okay, thank you, Lucy. So I'm gonna step back one step further. And I think the biggest issue I see is the actual awareness of most developers to accessibility. Yes websites have come a long way in the past 20 years. They are much more sophisticated than they were before. But ultimately, the more sophistication, the more inaccessibility is built in. I'm not saying we can't have sophisticated websites, but developers you know, in the mainstream need to understand what accessibility is and why it's important to use standardized type tools and code, etc. When we get our inaccessibility, it's when a developer tries to be fancy and doesn't actually realize that accessibility is a thing. I mean, as soon as a developer thinks about accessibility, they make beautiful code. But if they don't have any awareness of accessibility, there's nothing in the education you know that they go through. There's no training that they receive in accessibility. They can't even imagine that a person who is blind and visually impaired or a person who may not have the use of their hands, would be using their code so they don't make the, you know, the code to a way that it actually accommodates those people. I, I think for me, I see the biggest issue for web accessibility today is that, you know, 90% of the population isn't aware of accessibility because they don't actually have, you know, engagement and interaction with people with disabilities and they can't they can't put their head around that and they don't even want to put their head around it because they don't see the need. As soon as we engage and, you know, especially ACB does a really good job of engaging positively with developers, you know, we can come up with really beautiful, really elegant, sophisticated websites that not only are accessible to us, but actually other people find better. 99.9% .9 of the time, anything that we consider inaccessible um, is actually not that great for everybody. You know, users who try and interact with these inaccessible sites might be able to do it, whereas we can't. But, you know, it's not a it, it's not what we call a beautiful experience for anyone. And as soon as we start interacting, talking about accessibility, uh, I, I can't tell you how many times when I've sat down with a developer and or, you know, somebody who was using a tool and they said, God, I, I hate when it does that. 
you know, I wish it would just stop, you know, maybe flickering on the screens, constantly changing with images that are changing. It's like, nobody likes that. But the reason we don't like it is because it draws our focus away from where we're at. And we can't, we can't actually read the content because the content keeps changing. That's the accessibility for us. It makes it a complete barrier. But those features that are inaccessible, you know, actually don't work for anybody. And I think being able to teach developers about accessibility is the best part, you know, going out there and having them understand what accessibility is and having them partner with people with disabilities, you know, and having a person with a disability there. I mean, every time I give a presentation, I say this because I really believe it. And I think it's really important. Have a person with a disability in your office, on your team, as a vital contributor. The people on your team will then work to make sure the accessibility is there for that person and then there for the customers and there for everyone else. Well said. Thank you. Um, hey, Ray, real quick here. Um, I'd like to get your perspective, Ray, too. Like, sure, I was. Know, I was. I was uh, about to. I was about to give that, Jeff. So there you go. Great. Reading okay, my mind. Great. How about that? Yeah, that's, that's very awesome. dangerous, okay. you know. Yeah, well, there um, you go. <laughs> you know yeah. me too well. No, uh, Lucy said it really well. But I think, in addition to developers and teaching them the importance of accessibility, I think it even goes back further. Um, especially if you're in a situation like I am where you're in a corporate setting and you're working on big projects, I think you've got to go back to the beginning of the project. Uh, we call it at United, uh, we call it moving left. And it's something that we're really working very hard on right now. Um, back to the business analysts that are creating stories, back to the really the designers. The designers really have such a huge impact on accessibility because they're putting the screens together and they're putting together the um, uh, what the images are going to be. So they're going to you know need to be able to define what the alt text needs to be. They're going to be they're putting together the color palettes so that they need to know if they're violating color contrast rules and um, and all of that. Uh, one of the so one, so the approach we've taken at United is we have begun doing. Well, just real basic accessibility 101 awareness and training. And as part of that, we talk about why we do accessibility. We talk about what it means. Uh, because as Lucy said, 90% of the world doesn't know what accessibility is and why it's important. Um, and we, um, we do, uh, and we give, we try to give people in various roles some tools that they can use to at least look for some basic accessibility. For example, um, one of the things we've started doing with our developers on various projects, and we're an agile shop, so there's somebody that understands accessibility in each of our pods. And and um, what we've started to do is um, accessibility desk checks. So it, it's it's very rudimentary. We'll have a developer actually bring up the code that he's working on or she's working on and have them just, just do some basic running through a screen reader with it. Uh, we'll have them tab through it and see um, can they access everything with a keyboard. We'll have them tab through with a screen reader. Let's see how it sounds. How are things being announced? And are they being announced correctly and, you know, in a way that the user can interact with those things? 
Um, and and that and then again, as I said, we 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 show them how to run color palettes through uh, analyzers so that um, they can uh, do that. Uh, so, just some rudimentary things that we uh, try to do, uh, try to do uh, to help our developers. Can I? Gonna, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I I, I want to emphasize what you said there. Is it's every pro part of the process. It's from the designers to the executive team. Everybody in the entire process needs to understand the accessibility, and you know. You've got to have the buy-in. I mean, yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, you know, the VP of sales wants us to have this carousel. Well, does the VP of sales ever visit the site and realize how distracting that carousel yeah. is? Yeah. I, re I remember, Lucy, a couple of years ago, we were doing a rebranding. And it took pulling teeth to get the business folks that wanted this great new color palette to have to realize, wait a minute. That violates color contrast, and we're under a mandate to make our website accessible. Um, yeah, the buy-in is so important. And if you can get, if you're working for a company, and if you can get the folks there to realize, hey, it's not just because we have to do this. It's the right thing to do. And it, it makes you more money because, you know, one of the statistics I use in training is the number of people with disabilities in the world and what they represent in spending power. That that speaks to businesses. That's that's customers. That's money. Yeah, I mean, twenty six percent of the population is a exactly. big number for them to think about that they're they're losing mm. that business. Yeah, the other advocacy thing I also use a lot in other all kinds of advocacy, and I've been told it scares people, but I still use it. Is that we're the only minority anybody can join at any time. So there is that. But and Lucy, I like what you said about interlean too. The, when we design for accessibility, it helps everybody. And that's a really important concept. Um, so that's right. Well, on the couple of minutes we have left, Ray, let's talk a little bit about days two and day three. Sure. Uh, so, so we've talked a lot about the legal framework. We talked about uh, advocacy and we talked about the importance of, of why we're here and, and some of the design principles that companies ought to consider tomorrow. I'll be joining you in facilitating the conversation, and we're going to be joined by TPGI, Freedom Scientific, and Microsoft Corporation. So tomorrow, TPGI is going to kick things off, and they're going to give all of you as consumers and, and people that are here participating in the convention an opportunity to understand at a very high level the web content accessibility guidelines, at least the principles that we align to when we think about the guidelines that form web accessibility principles. Okay. Then we're going to hear about, and this is very subjective because one person's top five may be slightly different than another, but we're going to hear about the top five web accessibility issues that are most commonly seen on the web. We're not going to solve them that day. We're not going to go in depth as to how to overcome them. That's in day three, but we'll get there in a minute. Then finally, we want to start to empower you. We've talked a lot about the importance. We've talked about the frameworks and, and principles that align to the work that we do in reference to web accessibility. But now we want to give you tools. So Microsoft Corporation from the Accessibility Insights team is going to join us, and they're going to walk us through accessibility insights. They're going to talk about the product, both from an end user and developer uh, perspective, so that we at least get an understanding 
all up on how that tool works and what it's designed to do. It's really an amazing tool and it's, and it is of course, fully accessible. So uh, it's a tool that you can utilize to help facilitate conversations as you work with people that you're, you know, striving to get websites fixed with, you know, whoever that might be. And then day three, we're going to bring the crew back together, including the people that are here today, along with Freedom Scientific and TPGI. And we're going to have a really in-depth conversation on that top five and how we as screen reader users can overcome these principles and overcome these issues as much as possible through advanced screen reader techniques. And then we're going to dive a little bit deeper into why we're here, the importance, how to engage with vendors, and, and really align on setting you up for success to be empowered. And finally, we're going to leave you with a tool on that third day to allow you to even be more effective and work collaboratively together with everyone to be able to facilitate conversations and to drive for great web accessibility in anything that you do. So that's the the event over the next three days. And we're hoping that you'll join us in days two and three. Um, we're, we're really, really excited about that. And uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that yeah. kind of sums it up. It, yeah, we and hope you Jeff are Jeff and Ray, can I give the ending scene? I was just please? about to ask you for that. Okay. Yep. So go ahead. All right. It's one, eight, two, eight, one. Again, it's one, eight, two, eight, one. Okay. I want to I want to thank Irlene and and Lucy and of course Ray and for all of you for being here and please do join us tomorrow at the same time where we'll hear from TPGI and Microsoft and we'll uh, be diving into a lot more depth and, and with a lot of hands-on and demonstrations throughout days 2 and day 3. So, all right. Again, thanks everybody. I appreciate thank each you. and every one of you. We'll see you tomorrow.